Morning, everyone. How are you doing? Great. There's been a few roadblocks, I think, isn't there, with the, what is it, 10K? 10K. Great. And welcome to all the students. And if you're the first time in Swansea, uh, you've come to a great city. And uh, we'll be praying for you uh, over the next couple of weeks that you really settle in well, uh, that you feel at home, and you make some great friends, because that makes the world of difference, doesn't it, to have great friends. Well, we're in the middle of a series on the parables, or as we're calling them, Jesus stories. And these Jesus stories, or parables, simply were earthly stories that Jesus told that revealed to us a heavenly meaning. And basically, Jesus told them so that we could understand what the kingdom of God is like, or the way God does things. Or if, if, if God had a country... How would he rule it and what would it be like? Because there is a country that God has. It's called the kingdom of heaven. And uh, it might not be an earthly location, but it is a spiritual location and it's real. And then Jesus prayed, didn't he? And he said to us to pray this and do this. Pray that your kingdom will come, your will be done as in heaven on earth. So God wants the ways and the culture And the way God does things in heaven to increasingly be in our lives and affect this world that he has made. And that's basically our job description. To bring in the kingdom of God more and more and more. And that's what we're called to do. And eventually when Jesus returns, he's going to open the door and the whole thing is going to come completely. Which is great. And if we're going to bring in the kingdom of God, we really need to understand it so that one, we can pray for it, understand it, and live it. So I live as a British citizen, so I live like a Brit. And in living like a Brit, I reinforce the British way. That's the way it is, isn't it? And if I am going to reinforce and bring in and advance the kingdom of God, I have to understand the kingdom of God so I can live like a citizen of heaven on earth. And in so doing that, in the words I say, in the things I do, more of the kingdom comes through into my life and through the life of others. And that's what we're called to do. So this parable, we've got another parable to look at. But before I talk about it, let me sometimes, you know that prayer I've been talking about, your kingdom come, your will be done. There is a bit in it that says, lead us not into temptation. I don't know about you, but there have been many times when I reflect back, I said, you know, I should have really tried to pray that prayer more often. I, there, there, there was a time um, regularly on a Thursday afternoon around about 5.15, that I found myself in Paddington Station tempted. Now let me tell you why. Because uh, for 16 years I was a member of the Evangelical Alliance UK. It was a tremendous privilege to serve on that board. And it would be on a Thursday and several times throughout the year I would have to go up and we'd start at 9.30 with a big wad of papers and we'll finish at 4.30 and it gave me about half an hour to get to Paddington Station and I could either catch the 5.15 or the 6.15 or the 7.15 train home back to London. But that particular time spot was the peak travelling time for getting out of London and the route would take you to Reading and Swindon and Bristol and... 
And this is basically what would happen. When the train would come in, a whole load of people would be gathering underneath the board. And it would say, train has arrived. And that would be like the starting gun. On your marks. And the gate was there. And then it would come up. We'd be looking for the next one, which was like, get set, which would be, Train being prepared. It would come up on the, and we'd all be ready. Because we know in a moment it would be, say, boarding. And then when it says boarding, the gates would open. And the hundreds of passengers wanting to get on that 515, 615, 715 train home as quick as they could. And not be left in between the carriages rattling around where it's drafty and cold for like three hours. With no... You know, it, it was a, if you were caught there, it was a miserable journey home. So it would go, and when that said, now board, everybody would leg it as fast as they could. And of course, the younger, the mobile, those who didn't have luggage, and the old and the lame, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and women with children and parents with children and baggage, they wouldn't stand a chance. But everybody would leg it to get the best seat. And in that culture and in that frenzy, it's so easily to caught up it and say, actually, I don't want to be three hours on my way home from, from Paddington to Swansea and forget the fact to consider others. Because I wanted to have a place on a comfy seat. So easy to do that, isn't it? And that Temptation happens so often. I thought, you know, I really need to pray more. Deliver me from temptation. I don't know if you've experienced this type of temptation either. Very similar. Around about Christmas time, the week coming up to it usually, the last week, shopping to do. You go to Vorisvach Retail Park or any retail park in Swansea and it is rammed with cars, right? And you know you haven't done all the shopping so you have to find a parking space. And there isn't a parking space. And it can take you hours to find a parking space, right? And you're going round and round again. So what do you do? You say, well, what I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to be strategic. I'm going to have to find a lane and position myself and wait, trusting that at some point, somebody will come in and I'll be able to nip into their car parking space so it's become free, rather than just going round and round and round, because that could take me hours. So this is what I would do. And I'm sure you've done the same. Now I think, well, where do I wait? If I wait at the top of the lane, I'd be waiting there 20 minutes, but somebody could drive in at the bottom of the lane, and just in 30 seconds, coincidentally, somebody would pull out, and they'd get my space that I've been waiting for 20 minutes. And that's not a nice feeling, is it? And I said, oh, if I, at, if I wait at the bottom, the same thing can happen at the top. Who has experienced this? Yes, put your hands up. You can be honest. This is a safe place. <laughs> so what I would do, I would, I would go in the middle. So I could keep an eye on the front, and I could put it into first gear real quick and get there real... And I'd be looking in the mirror so I could reverse real quick, and I could get the space. I'm basically cutting my odds down to get that space. Yeah, but I remember on one occasion... I do remember this. On one occasion... I saw somebody just leave behind me. And just as I reversed it, the way the car came out, I couldn't nip in as they came out because it came out behind me, so I had to wait for them to go. And as they were going, four lads with baseball caps 
from the age of 18 to I would say 21 in a white shiny fiesta and bling as I was reversing, zipped in before. I'd been waiting 20 minutes and they ripped in in about 10 seconds and they knew I'd been waiting and they couldn't get and they got out of the car laughing at me as they walked into the stores. (laughs) Now this is where it goes beyond praying for me to be delivered from temptation. This is where I need to pray the Lord deliver me from evil. The evil I like to commit right now. Because this is really what I, this, this little thought came right in the corner of my soul. I could let one of their tires down. No, no, that's no good. That would be wrong. That, wouldn't, that, would, that would serve no purpose at all. Because they've got a spare. I'll let two. And I will make it so they will rule the, the day that they ever <laughs> did that and mocked me on the way into the car. Have you ever experienced anything? All because somebody got the place I wanted. Well, this parable we're going to look at today is basically speaks into that type of stuff. Should we have a look at it together? Good. Now, please forgive me. My voice, I've had a terrible throat virus. I'm, I'm better, but I'm on the aftermath of it. So if I'm a little bit weak in my voice and it's irritating, I apologize. You have to forgive me. Okay, let's read it together. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being watched carefully, or carefully watched. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host will invite both uh, both of you, if, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who are exalted themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Next page. Is there a next page? Okay, that's all right. We'll get to it later. So... Okay, here's a parable, earthly parable that communicates the kingdom. This a parable, this story that Jesus told, isn't just about parties, weddings, and special events. It's, it's about an attitude, a posture in life that we take on, and particularly an attitude towards others. It's a posture or a heart attitude that we choose to adopt for life. And there are things outside of us in the world that we live in that war against the well-being of our souls and are incompatible to the values of the kingdom of God that we have just been talking about, the culture, the ways of God and the rule of God in heaven that he wants to bring on earth. And there are things that are outside that are incompatible, but they're More disturbingly, there are things inside us that are incompatible with the kingdom of God and war against our own souls so that they don't do us God. So so there's challenges without and there's challenges within. And the internal things are the attitudes of heart 
that lurk subtly, and often we don't realize they're there, but they lurk within us, and they begin to dictate and to control us without us realizing it, and we get caught up in it. A bit like me running with everybody else for the best seat and not giving consideration to somebody who might need it more than me. They're there, inside us. So it can be like pride or inflated ego, which basically is not so much a boasting about what we have or what we can do, but at the end of the day, this is what pride and inflated ego do. It's It's a subtle attitude of superiority. We can get from our achievements, our possessions, our talents, our intellect, our position in life. It's a subtle attitude of inferiority. The most, that's one of the most cunning and subtle things that we have in today's world. And we don't realize that we get caught up in it, just like running in that platform, is, is comparison. So subtle, isn't it? Everywhere you go, it's comparison. And every advert and often every course and so much in life and you know whether it's politics or education or adverts or going for something or it's it's basically about you know okay be your best but really subtly it can be be better than others and it's a subtle thing and it's this thing of the inflated ego which the bible calls pride that is so incompatible with the ways of god and actually doesn't do us any good. It, it is a corrosive thing within us. Subtle. We don't see it. But it's evident. This is how it evidences itself. It evidences itself in how we see people and how we treat people. It, it evidences itself in our response to others. And fundamentally, that's what this parable is all about. So Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house, a prominent Pharisee. There's a, there's a key in the first line, a prominent Pharisee. There you go, there's the statement. And Pharisees were known for their self-righteousness and their sense of superiority because fundamentally they felt that they were more righteous and they observed the law better than anybody else. And they were comparing and it produced a sense of superiority within them. And when it says, and the Pharisees were watching Jesus, what, is that, what does that statement, what does it entail within that statement? Basically, they were judging him. And that's what it does. It compares, it judges, it evaluates. It values and devalues according to the outcome of that judgment. And Jesus then was observing that the guests were choosing the best seats at the table, and of course in the culture of the day, like today, you know, the, the, the best seats of the table often promote the ones that have the most esteem and the most value. I mean, I was, had the privilege of being chaplain to the mayor at one time in Swansea, and Sarah and myself would get invited to these amazing events, and we, it was really cool, we'd be picked up in these limousines with flags and people with wearing hats and chauffeur-driven to all these, it was great fun. And often we'd have to go to these dinner parties and they would actually, you know, do the same thing. They would seek people in order of their esteem or value in the community or the city. Uh, and, and it was the same then, it's the same today. And um, 
Jesus noticed that people were deliberately uh, running, so to speak, to find the best places so that they could be seen to have a place of honor and respect. But fundamentally, what they were really doing is that they were valuing their place above others. See, it wasn't so much as, oh, I, I want to be seen, it was this, I want to be seen as one of the most important and esteemed people, but in so doing, they were devaluing others because they were taking the place that other people should have. And that's why he gave the illustration, when you go to a wedding, don't take the place that somebody else should have and allow, allow the, the, the guest host to determine that, but not you. And so Jesus was challenging people about considering others less favorably or inferior. And it's something, as you know and I know, we can all do from time to time, and we often don't realize we're doing it because the culture wraps it up that we live in in such a way that it makes it acceptable. Often our pride is obvious to everybody else except ourselves because pride deceives us. So this parable says this, and this is a beautiful thing. It calls us to the kingdom heart of humility, and it is beautiful and wonderful. Now let me tell you what humility isn't. Humility, as Rachel did with her brilliant kid spot, is not denying who you are. God made you. So you better accept that you are pretty good. I mean, the psalmist says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Hey, look at me. I'm wonderful. David wasn't proud in saying that. He was acknowledging that God's creation in making you is amazing. And you are. It is not denying your gifts and the talents that you possessed. As Rachel rightly said in the kid spot today, you know, God has given you gifts so you can do stuff really good. Because they're God's gifts. And if he has called you and gifted you for a purpose and a task and give you all the skills that you need, you're not going to be rubbish at it. Because everything that God does is brilliant. And you are brilliant. And he has talented you and gifted you both in natural gifts and spiritual gifts to actually excel in certain areas. Not every area. He hasn't given you all the whole package. But in the areas that he's called you to, you better expect a certain level of competence. And there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. That is not a lack of humility. God is humble. We know that. He loves humility. Heaven has a humble culture. And yet God says to himself, hey everyone, I'm almighty. I'm the man. And he doesn't have a problem with that. He says, I know the beginning from the end. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right always? With man things are impossible, but with me, nothing's impossible. Step aside, I'll get the job done. He knows what he's doing. He has an incredible level of self-confidence, and it's not pride. Humility can acknowledge who you are. Humility, humble people, can take a compliment. 
He said, you know when you did that worship today, Beth and the band, you did a great job. And humility will respond something like this. Thank you very much for that encouragement. And internally, it will say, thank you, Lord, that you helped me and for your anointing and the privilege that you gave me enabled to do that and the gifts that you enabled me to serve others. Thank you. So they'll say, thank you. That's really encouragement because we all need encouragement. And internally, you, say, you recognize the source. That's what a humble person does. That's okay. That's good. It is to own the sources from God and to take responsibility to steward the gift and the calling. Let me tell you this. If I didn't own the fact that God had given me a teaching gift, a preaching gift, and a leadership gift, I wouldn't take responsibility for it. Because if I didn't own the fact that those are gifts that God has given me and I am called to excel in them, I wouldn't discipline my life, I wouldn't pray about it, I wouldn't study, I wouldn't be careful, and therefore I wouldn't have any sense that I am going, I'm responsible to God and others for that gift. And when I stand before God on the day of judgment, he evaluates my life, I wouldn't have any sense that that is going to happen so that I could waste and not steward effectively, faithfully, the gifts that God has given me. So to acknowledge your gifts and that you have been gifted is, is humble, but it's also a part of being a good steward that God calls us to. So don't be frightened of that. But this passage that we've been reading, uh, it looks at humility, and it says the humility that God looks for, fundamentally, this is what it is, humility is not failing to acknowledge that you are amazing before God and wonderfully gifted and can do stuff well, Humility that God looks for is this. It's an attitude that values, esteems, and honors others above yourself. A humble person, and this is a, this is a biblical definition of a humble person in the light of this parable. A humble person is someone who values, esteems, and honors others above themselves. So if at the seat of the dinner table, having the best seat is a sign of importance and respect and value of people, oh, this person who sits here is highly valued. It's a sign. Jesus says, if that's the sign of recognizing the value of somebody, take the bottom. Not that you are saying, I am not valued, no. You take the bottom so that you can deliberately create a space for other to be valued. It's not saying, oh, I got no value at all. I'm going to sit down here. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, you sit down here so that I can, out of my choices, have the opportunity to make sure that you're valued. You understand? And that is biblical humility. It's not saying you have little value, but it's making sure you give value to others. And this is kingdom living, and it's God's heart. Jesus says, take the place at the bottom, value others more than seeking to be valued yourself. Choose the humble corner, choose to esteem others, Choose to let others have the highest place. 
Why did he do this? Because this is the way that Jesus modeled life. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 2. Thank you. Slides. Look how God lives. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Look at it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Do you see how it links? It says, don't be proud. And then it says, how, what's the antidote to pride? In humility, value others more than yourselves. You know, it's really difficult to sort of, don't be proud, don't be proud, don't be proud, don't be proud. It's really, it's really difficult to not be proud. And then if you do a humble thing or you defer a compliment, you know, go, oh, that was a very humble thing of me. <laughs> doesn't work like this. No, this is the way you, be, you exercise humility. Stop thinking about not being trying to be proud. Start thinking about valuing others. And humility will be the actual outcome of your life. And this is how Jesus lived. And then it says this. Rather in humility, consider others above yourselves, not looking to your own, tri- own interests, but each of you should consider the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ, which was a humble mindset. How is that humble mindset? Manifest. It's manifest like this. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, what that means is this. Jesus, who is God, he was sitting on the God seat next to the Father in heaven, sitting on the God seat. But he didn't consider the God seat in almighty heaven something to be laid hold of. But he came down to earth and clothed himself in humanity and took on the seat next to you and me. That's humility. And he humbled himself and took on the nature of the servant. And basically what Jesus did He valued you and me so much that he gave up his seat next to the Father, took on the place and the seat next to a criminal on a cross. What an amazing exchange. He identified with sin and sinful men, becoming like them in his likeness, limiting his godness into human form. He's still fully God, but limited himself For the three years, well, his lifetime he was with us, and he suffered the shame and the humiliation of the cross. And therefore, because of that, just like the host in the parable, he says, because you've taken the bottom seat, my son, come on up. And God has now raised him up to the right hand of the Father again and given him the name above every name, King of kings, Lord of lords, by which every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow to the glory of God the Father, Jesus is Lord. Why? Why did God take Christ, the God who has now become a man, and the man who is God, now placing the God-man next to him and giving him a name above everything because he took the humble corner? And it was demonstrated through his death on the cross, being positioned 
next to a criminal to give humanity honor and value. And that's what this parable speaks of. He gives honor to the humble and he lifts them up. If you humble yourself and give value to others, you will demonstrate humility and you will attract the presence of God and God will honor you. God says this in Isaiah. Who do I dwell with? He who has a contrite heart, no, he who has a humble heart and a contrite spirit. Why does God dwell with the humble? Because the humble people reflect the heart of God. And he feels very comfortable with people just like himself. That's why. And how do we do that? We do it by giving value to others. There's another verse in Micah. It says, what is expected of you? Love mercy and justice and walk humbly before your God. What does that? To love mercy is to consider others. To love justice is to actually consider the value of others and their concern and their cause and their plight and their difficulty. And it's giving honor to others as you step into the challenges of their life to lift them up. And, and he, he, he marries humble humility with loving mercy and justice because that's what he's like. And that's why he stepped into this world. So how can we do it? Let's get some practical as, as we begin to close. I'm crackling a bit, so I'll try not to move around so much. How do we do it? Uh, there's two valuable deposits that we need in our hearts in order to do this. Because let me uh, just explain this to you. Everything in the kingdom of God and in the life of Christ comes from within us. It, it all flows from the resource of God within us. So there's two deposits from God. One, faith. Um, we need faith. Faith comes from facts, facts of the word of God. And what facts do we need? We need, the, we need to have faith in this fact that every single person, rich or poor, no matter where they come from, little or old, doesn't matter, is made in the image of God and carries the likeness of God and God has made them. And because every single person, no matter who they are, what they've done, where they come from, what they've achieved or what they haven't, their successes or their failures, whether, whether when we hang around them, they bring us joy or laughter, or whether we hang around them and we find that potentially they could really wind us up. That's irrelevant. Everybody, 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 every single person does come from a mother's womb is made in the image of God and therefore has great value. And we honor them because they are made in God's likeness and in so doing we honor and give value to God. And it's a choice. Everybody has infinite value, regardless of state. I'm just, I'm, what I'm doing, I'm just turning the thing up so it might be a bit loose. So everybody has value, regardless of status, achievements, conduct. By faith, I live valuing others. And therefore, I bring value to God. And this is what Jesus did for us. That's what he did for us. So that's the first thing. So we have to actually really see people through the eyes of God, their creator's image. You can do that. We can do that. Secondly, another deposit, love. 
Someone might say, well, how can I value and give esteem and respect to others when I know that they're not as competent or as accomplished as me or others in something? How can I do that? That's, I mean, somebody might say that. Or, you know, it's like a football player who says, how can he really give value to another football player when they five minutes joining the new team, they realize that actually they're rubbish because football players are really good at spotting good players and teachers are good at spotting good teachers and musicians know a good musician, you know, that type of thing. Well, how can, how can I do that? Well, we're not talking about people's talents. This is, this is where we go. We're not talking about people's talents or their competence or achievements or their successes. That's how the world that we live in, which is not the values of the kingdom, bring honor and respect to people. You know, they get knighthooded for the things they've done. They give respect for the night. They give them a lordship for the things they've achieved. They get job. They get interviews on TV for the things that they've done. That's that's the system of the world. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. It doesn't work like that. This is no. I'm not valuing for what you can do and what you can achieve and what you have. I'm valuing for you who you are, because you're a person. Even if you achieve nothing, you're a person. And this is. Every, par- every loving parent will understand this. And, and those of you who haven't had children yet, when you have children, you will go, oh, I'll get it now. When you have a child, a loving parent has a child, and somehow you have this little child, and you love them, and you value them so much that really, if push came to shove, you'd give your life for them. The number of times I've heard parents say to kids who are sick and got toothaches, oh, oh honey, I wish I could take that toothache. I wish I could suffer in your place. That's what Jesus, I wish I could suffer in your place because he highly values you. Parents do that type of stuff. They would lay down their lives for their children. But imagine you've got a toddler. I've had three of them. And toddlers, they can't like, they bring us so much joy and pleasure, but they can't do anything for you. You can't say, oh, I'm really tired. Can can you go and get the the milk and bread? Will you go upstairs and get my slippers that I've forgotten? Oh, the kitchen's a right mess. Would you tidy it up? And half, oh, the lounge it's like a bomb's hit it, and you, little one, have made it. <laughs> Will you tie it up? They can't, can they? But, but the thing is, it doesn't have any bearing on how much you love them and value them, and how much you would suffer for them and lay down your life and go through sleepless nights for them, does it? Because love has nothing to do with what somebody can do for you or how talented or competent they are or how mature or even how well-behaved they are. So nothing to do with it. Is love. And that's how God loves us. And so, so this is why God loves humility. That one, it values others, and that's the way God values us. But ultimately, the source of humility is love. God is love. That's ultimately where it comes from. The source of humility is love. And that's why we read in wedding services, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is not proud. So here we have it. And in Philippians 2, it says, therefore, if any encouragement from being united, any comfort from his love, make my joy complete, being completely humble, value others above yourselves. So how do I get love? Love is a gift of God that the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit has poured his love in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is a gift and love is a gift. On prayer, Luke 11, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who love him 
and all the Holy Spirit brings to us. That's what basically what it means. So if you want love, you ask, you seek it, you pray for it, you, you, he, you call on him for it, he will give it to you. If I would want to encourage you in your prayer life, amongst many things you want to pray for, ask God to continually fill your heart with love. Just ask him, because it comes from him. And you will find that you are valuing others and therefore bearing the fruit of humility. And love is the culture of heaven, the character of Christ. I'm going to be finishing very soon. But I'd like to read you a portion here. From a, it's from a devotional called Imagine Heaven. Uh, John Burke has written a book, Imagine Heaven, in a nutshell, for those of you who don't know. This is research from thousands of people who've had near-death experiences, and they've reported the same experience. And John Burke has gone through all the research, and uh, uh, astonishingly how um, these encounters they have are tracked in the scriptures. Um, there's many people in the Bible had near-death experiences, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, uh, the, the widow of Canaan, she, he, Jesus raised his son. Paul had one. Uh, Elijah raised somebody from the dead. And this talks about the consistent reports of people who've gone to heaven and come back. It's not saying they're saved yet, because we're not talking about the judgment. And in the reports, they can only go so far. They're not actually all the way in. So they still need to give their lives to Christ. But um, some of them are Christians, um, and some of them, they get a glimpse and, they, and they, they, they need to give their lives to Christ and it's not the judgment. Do you understand? So just to let you know, you can find, you'll find out more if you read the book. But listen to this one. It was 1943 in Camp Barclay, Texas. George Ritchie had enlisted to fight the Nazis. In the middle of boot camp, he woke up at midnight, heart pounding with a 106 degree fever. During x-rays, he passed out. The attending doctor declared him dead. Years later, a medical doctor, George, would display his death certificate where he spoke over his life-changing encounter. Where was I? George pondered. I stared in astonishment as the brightness increased coming from nowhere, seeming to shine everywhere at once. It was impossibly bright. It was like a million welders' lamps all blazing at once. And right in, the middle of my, right in the middle of my amazement came a prosaic thought, probably born of some biology lecture back at university. I'm glad I don't have physical eyes at this moment, I thought. This light would destroy the retina in a tenth of a second. No, I corrected myself. Not the light. He. He would be too bright to look at. For now I saw it was a man, not light, but a man who had entered the room, or rather a man made of light. The instant I perceived him, a command formed itself in my mind, stand up. I got to my feet, and as I did, came a stupendous certainty. You are in the presence of the Son of God, and from his presence came a love beyond my wildest imagination. This love knew every unlovable thing about me, every mean, selfish thought and action since the day I was born and accepted me, loved me just the same. 
He was not blaming me or reproaching me. He was simply loving me, filling the world with himself and yet somehow attending to me personally, waiting for my answer to the question that still hung in the dazzling air. What have you done with your life to show me? The question, like everything else proceeding from him, had to do with love. How much have you loved with your life? Whatever I saw was only from the doorway to speak, but it was enough to convince me totally that how I spend our time, my time on earth, the kind of relationships we build, is vastly, infinitely more important than we can know. This parable encourages us to love others, value others more highly than ourselves, and in so doing, we live a life of humility. He closes it with a challenge, how it can, an example of how it can be worked out. How long have I been speaking? 35 minutes. Okay, I just want to speak to Can I just have the last slide, please? Jesus said, this is how he ends the parable. Jesus said, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. It basically means alone. You know, it doesn't mean you can't do that, but make sure in the course of your life you mix it up a bit. If you do this, you may, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, students, <laughs> crippled, lame, blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I thank you so much for these wonderful parables of the kingdom that give us a peek into your heart. And out of your heart, you rule. But your rulership is not one of oppression, but one of love, liberation, that seeks to that models the life that really in our innermost heart we all want to live and the type of world that we want to live in. And as your kingdom people, called, forgiven because of Christ, with your spirit in us, invited to bring your kingdom in on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in little ways as well as bigger challenges that you will help us to live a life of love, Intentionally, intentionally choosing to value others above ourselves and in so doing model humility, knowing that you will honor us, dwell with us, bless us, help us, and our souls will flourish. Help us, Lord, in this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.